Gradebook, a Tampa Bay Times podcast on Florida education issues. It's September 20th, and I'm reporter Jeff Solacek, and I'm here with Marlene Sokol, another one of our reporters. We've been out and about throughout Hurricane Irma and its aftermath, and that's going to be the subject of most of our podcast today. How's it going today, Marlene? Um, it's going very well. We've gotten some updates on some situations, and um, one thing I wanted to do before I forget is to recommend people look at a video and I tweeted this out. I called it the highlights reel. It's a video of things that Hillsborough County school district employees did during hurricane Irma. Um, it's also on their YouTube channel. It's on their webpage. Um, and it's very interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, it's going to give you some good visuals of some extraordinary things that school district employees from the superintendent who spent the storm at the emergency operations center, but also custodians, technicians, teachers, principals, what they did. And it was really extraordinary. If I, if I can tell one quick story um, and just an example, because I spent a lot of time in the shelters, um, Middleton High School. I, I was at Middleton High School on the last day after everybody else was left their shelters and people had no place to go were at Middleton High School. And so the principal, Dr. Moore, I mean, I saw her working with about a dozen shelter residents um, who had a lot of problems. They were homeless, and she was exhausted, but she really had extraordinary patience working with the Red Cross to make sure that everybody had a place to go. That's a, that's a great story, and it's one that we're hearing across the region as people are coming back with letters and emails to all sorts of officials praising their school district people, whatever county they were in, for all the hard work they put in at the shelters, whether they were feeding them, moving them around, or just being nice, because they had no idea what to expect. They were scared, and and a lot of people just have gone up to principals or whoever they've seen at the schools and thanked them for for their job that they did during the storm. I ran into one person who went up to a principal at Sun Lake High School in Land Lakes and thanked the principal and asked for his Yelp address so she could give him five stars. Oh, man. No, it was... That's it, cute. No, it was really extraordinary. And I saw the same thing at Piso Elementary and at Canell Elementary. And, you, you know, so you saw a lot of heroics. I don't think that's an overstatement. You saw people who... They walked away from their own homes and families, and they provided comfort and care to, to people who, in some cases, were terrified. I mean, you were not at a shelter unless you were at least very frightened. Um, so I, so it was extraordinary, but, but getting back to the video, um, I mean, the other thing you appreciate when you see the video is, and again, it's a compilation of, of other videos, that had been shot even the even days before the storm. And in fact, days before the storm began, I had these videos emailed to me in a Dropbox. And it was footage of the maintenance and security people setting up a special needs shelter. And it was interviews with school bus drivers who were part of the evacuation effort and, and took 
elderly and medically frail people to the shelters. So, you know, and, and that gets a little bit to the, the public relations aspect. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that people in the public school systems at all levels were very heroic and, and they were a key part, a key component of the community's response to the storm. And they did some amazing work. I think it's also clear that this is something that school systems can use to show the community here. This is what we're all about. Um, this is why it's important to, for us to maintain our buildings. Um, and you could say in some cases it's kind of a public relations bonanza. It has been for all sorts of counties. I've read stories like that where school districts are going out of their way to say what they did and get credit for it all the way from Jacksonville down to the keys as much as they can. They're, they're looking for credit that they deserve. Yes. But, you know, at, at what point, you know, they're also trying to point out that in some cases the Red Cross didn't do anything and they don't want the Red Cross to get credit for things that the school district people did. And so they are actively seeking attention. And, you know, I think that in a lot of ter- times they deserve it, but you have to question sometimes when they send out like you're talking about a video or, or a phone message to family saying, we're working in your best interest as if they, they need, they, they need that validation as opposed to simply doing the job and knowing that it will come as it has in so many other places. Yeah. And it's a fine line between how much self-promotion is, is too much. And I don't know where that line is. Uh, and you and I both know that big government public school districts, you know, traditional public schools are under attack and they're under attack by corporate interests that run charter schools and they're under attack by politicians and by people who want to bust up the unions. So this is a war and this is a battle for the hearts and minds. Um, Now, one thing, now Hillsborough's got at this point a very sophisticated public relations office and they were very careful in their messaging not to make a comparison with charter schools. You know, you never see them say, this is what we do and charter schools don't do it. However, in the advocacy world, you know, and people who were retweeting these videos all weekend long, and they were very direct and and in saying public schools do this and charter schools do not. So this footage is being used, you know, in that battle for hearts and minds. That is so true. We had an onslaught of people after the storm was over complaining, basically, that the charter schools are receiving money. And what did they do for us during the storm? They stayed closed. They didn't help us. And now they're reopening before everybody else because they don't have to clean up. And and still they get all our money and it could be better used somewhere else. And and it became a political argument much more than just a, a service issue of who's really working for the public. It, it's all about how the money is used and where it goes. And honestly, you know, there's not really a good answer for anyone because on the one side, you have the charter school people who will say, look, you know, we don't get as much money from the state. We don't get any money to build our schools in a certain way. And so they are not, in fact, built as hurricane shelters except for the handful of them that were traditional district schools before and then converted. A couple of them do exist, and they one in Polk County, for instance, did open. But but people don't want to hear about that. And on the other side, the charter school people will don't want to hear complaints that they're 
they're not serving the public interest because they're focusing on the educational aspects of it and not so much on the buildings. Although, you know, the buildings are really where all the money is. <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting argument that just popped up. And it really surprised me how how vehement people were on both sides of it. Well, and that's because it's so it's so highly emotional on both sides and the and the competition has really intensified and even you know, I get pushed back if I say government run school system, you know, because people will say, well, that's a pejorative. You, you know, that you know, the other side uses that as a negative. But if I say public schools, then then you hear from the charter school people and they say, "Oh, no, no, no we're public schools too." So it's almost an Israel-Palestine kind kind of a thing with what words you use. But yeah, the emotions are are so high on both sides. And yeah, I think this storm could could change the conversation. And if for no other reason, it brought home the importance of of you know maintaining school buildings. You know, school buildings not only are they schools, but they are hurricane shelters. And a lot of school districts, including the one I cover, you know, they are not spending enough money to maintain their buildings, and they will say they do not have enough money to maintain their buildings. And this is a problem nationwide. The Council of Great City Schools did a study on this, and a a lot of large school districts do not have adequate infrastructure or funding for their infrastructure. And you really see that when it's a hurricane bearing down on you and 29,000 people are showing up to the shelters. Well, it seems interesting that you mentioned that point because you have right in your area, right near where I live too, Lee Elementary School, that the power came back on and it burned to the ground. Yeah, and that, if, if, if the message didn't get through before that fire, and yeah, and that really drove it home even more. Because, um, you know, after all the trauma of the hurricane and the evacuations, and then, and then you see a historic school, you know, burst into flames, um, which on top of the fact, it, it was kind of strange out of 230 schools in the district, the one that burst into flames was the one that was named after America's favorite Confederate general. But, but it was, um, yeah, and, and that raises a lot of questions, too. Um, we still do not know exactly what caused the fire. Um, officials have been very, very adamant that there's no sign that it was arson. I don't think they can say for 100% sure, but they're as sure as they can be that, that this was not something that was deliberately set for political reasons. Um, however, when you look at the circumstances surrounding the fire, Number one, the school did not have sprinklers, and and we reported, you know, more than close to two-thirds of the schools in Hillsborough County do not have sprinkler systems, and that's largely a money issue. Um, they, they don't put, an old, put sprinklers in an older building unless they're doing numerous major renovations, like a roof and an air conditioner. But um, now Lee just got a new roof over the summer, but did not get sprinklers, and then you look at the interior of the building, and I posted some pictures um, on Gradebook, you know, wooden floors, and I showed a picture of one hallway, obviously this is before the fire, wood floors, and then all these paper cardboard displays in the hallway because it was a world study school. And it even looked like some tissue paper. So when you think, okay, the power comes on, 
and then for whatever reason, a fire begins and there are no sprinklers and, and you have wood and paper, you know, like firewood and kindling, and it goes up into flames. Um, one of the questions that I would love to see an answer to is what did the electrical wiring look like and could that have been part of the problem? Um, we are hoping to see some of that information when the fire marshal finishes his investigation. And it may turn out that there was absolutely nothing wrong with the wiring. We, we just don't know. But getting back to the point about infrastructure, you know, looking back in hindsight, yeah, it sure would be nice if these schools all had sprinkler systems because now they have to replace things that, you know, some of these things cannot be replaced, the historic pictures, you know, the lanyards that the kids, you know, they, they add their buttons to every year and the school saves them until they leave the fifth grade. So, yeah, infrastructure and money needed to maintain school buildings. It's not a real sexy issue. Um, it has been neglected partly because, you know, school districts, they prefer to spend the money on academic things and things that will earn them prestige, you know, teacher evaluation systems, principal coaching systems. But I think this is in many ways driving home the reality that we have to spend money, you know, to maintain our public schools and their assets. I have to say, uh, as I wandered around after the storm, I talked to lots of people and they all talked about how you can replace things but you can't replace lives. And so I know when I visited Lockhart Elementary School, which is where Lee is relocating, I, I saw hundreds of people volunteering, bringing donations of everything from paper and pencils to like somebody brought a computer that they wanted to donate there. And and it was just an, a tremendous society thing coming together and saying, you know, this has brought us together. And it made me wonder, since you have a school a mile, mile and a half away from Lee, able and willing to accept all 300 students, all whatever 50 or so teachers and staff, do they even need to rebuild Lee Elementary School, knowing the limitations they have with finances? Well, okay, it's, and first of all, I want to backtrack a little bit and agree with you that it has been an extraordinary outpouring of support um, for Lee. Um, and it has been a very deliberate effort on the part of the school district and I think this is largely for the sake of, of the children and, you know, their their stability. They want to keep everything the same. At least for this year, they are committed to keeping the children with their same teachers, keeping their same routines, their same clubs. Um, I've seen some of the parent link messages that go out, you know, tomorrow is Maroon Day. Um, so they are trying to keep Lee intact, um, and, and, you know, even though it's under another school's roof. Now, the longer term question, why not just merge with Lockhart, which has plenty of room? And, and that's a good question. Um, and, and I, I just sat through a meeting of the school board's, uh, facilities committee. They are definitely thinking along the lines of rebuilding at Lee. Um, now, whether they will continue to call it Lee Elementary School, that's a whole other question. I mean, that name is so problematic, you know, it, it's, but they, they're, they they are looking into the possibility of restoring the building. You know, the brick facade is still there and, and they're costing it out. How much would it cost to restore and rebuild the building um, with the money they will get from FEMA 
and with other money they might get because it is a historical site, you know. But there is a lot of emotion surrounding Lee, and, and there is, I, I've been hearing from people who, first of all, they were very defensive at the whole controversy over the name. I mean, there, there are people who will stand in front of what remains of the school and say, Robert E. Lee Elementary is not the school name. That's not its name. And you almost want to say, turn around and look at the school. Look at the big white letters in the back of you that say Robert E. Lee Elementary School. But for the last 10 years or so, they've been calling themselves Lee School of World Studies and Technology. Um, but there is a lot of emotional attachment to it. There are people in Tampa who attended Lee as a child. It's a 111-year-old school. And I think, and there are also people who are so offended that there was a controversy over the name. So they've kind of dug in their heels, and and I think they're bringing other issues into this as well. They just don't like the idea that Southern monuments are being taken down, you know, everywhere. So it's a complicated question as to whether the school will be kept together, whether the school will be rebuilt, you know, what will become of the building, and again, part of that will depend on costs, and then eventually they're going to have to come to terms with the name. Do we reopen the school and continue for it to be named after a Confederate general? Okay. Um, I want to sort of spin away from the storm just for a few minutes. Since you're at the school board and everybody's been talking about House Bill 7069 and whether school boards are going to join that lawsuit, Pinellas joined yesterday Wakula joined on Monday. Alachua joined yesterday. Manatee County decided the other way. They said it's a frivolous lawsuit. They're not going to resolve anything. They decided not to join the lawsuit. But now people want to know Hillsboro, eighth largest school district in this country. What is it? Fourth or fifth largest in the state. What's it going to do? Do you know? You know, the silence has been deafening. Um, but however, the school board does have a workshop planned um, a week from Thursday on the 28th, where in the morning they will discuss the mechanics of HB 7069, what it means to Hillsboro, and in the afternoon, they will discuss, you know, should we join the lawsuit? Um, and I very much hope that at a, at a meeting in the sunshine, you know, with the media there, that the seven board members will go on the record and actually state their, their opinion. Um, and there are a few theories about why they've been so silent. One is that Hillsboro has so much debt that you know, unlike Pinellas, which has little to no debt, so they have to pay uh, under the state formula a lot of the capital money that's going to charter schools. Hillsboro, it's the opposite situation. They have huge debt, so they're not on the hook for as much money. Um, you know, a, another theory is that it's because they've applied for some of the Schools of Hope funding, although I don't really buy that because many districts have. Um, the reality is there are also some school board members who are Republican and who are looking at their next elected office. And who knows, maybe they, they don't want to, you know, join a lawsuit in, such as this one and, and maybe hurt their political futures. But um, I don't have a fix on, you know, if there were a vote taken today, where that vote would go. And again, the silence has, has been very conspicuous and I'm hoping that they will break that silence uh, next week. Uh, another factor is 
Hillsborough County does not have in-house counsel. They hire outside for, for, for law firms. So they have to consider the cost of that as well, paying the legal fees. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned a lot of those issues are the same ones that we've seen in other surrounding districts. I cover Pasco and and I've heard some comments about being fearful of vengeful lawmakers if they join the lawsuit, especially knowing in Pasco County, the House Speaker who spearheaded the entire bill is from there. Exactly. And, and we've all, it's making for an interesting political conversation. Uh, we have no idea what's going to happen with it yet. The lawsuit hasn't even been filed, but everybody's acting like it's a real thing because the money is there. The districts are forming up and, and there may be at least a dozen or more that are already online. And so we'll see how many just benefit from the lawsuit and how many actually participate in it. Yeah, but but circling back to Hurricane Irma and, and what we said initially, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that many people are looking at public schools, not just the buildings, but the people who, who work in them and, and who work in leadership roles in them. I think people might be looking at public schools a little bit differently and, and not taking them for granted as much as they might have a month ago when, when they were shopping around for, you know, what's the best charter school for me to send Johnny to. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if this sentiment will die down. You know, it probably will somewhat, but it's been a wake-up call, I, I think. Yeah, and so I guess they want to hear from their people who are running the show as to what where they stand on some of these key issues. It's really important, and, and we look forward to hearing what everybody does and how this progresses. So I appreciate you joining us again, Marlene, on the podcast. It's always great to have you be a part of it. Thank you. I always enjoy it. And uh, stay safe. (laughs) You too. Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. And that's the end of our podcast. If you want to participate in this or any other conversation, please join us on our Facebook page, Tampa Bay Times Gradebook. You can also follow all of the latest breaking news on Florida education issues at our blog, tampabay.com slash gradebook. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek. Thanks again for listening.